0: Everyone, welcome to Dig Deep. Well, it was about six years ago that I was driving home late one evening, and as I pulled into the parking lot of the apartment complex where we lived at the time, I found that none of the spots in the lot in front of our building were available. Now, this was in the middle of winter, and we'd had several days of slushy, icy, snowy weather, and that may have been why most people were hunkered down at home, making parking spots scarce. So I drove around the side of our building and couldn't find any street parking, so eventually ended up in the small parking lot behind our building and felt that wonderful feeling that you feel when there's one perfect parking spot available just for you. And so I quickly pulled into the spot and ran inside. Now that wonderful feeling of finding that spot immediately evaporated when the next morning my husband went out to use that car to drive to work, and he called me from the parking lot because he had found a little gift on the windshield. So I looked out the back window of our apartment and I could see him standing by the car holding a bright yellow slip of paper. And it was only from that bird's eye view that I could see through the layer of salt and snow on the asphalt the rough outline of a painted blue square with a white wheelchair in the middle of it. And in the state of Maryland, the fine for parking in a handicapped spot is 350 bucks. And so I was Bummed. I genuinely had no idea that was a handicapped spot. And my husband and I quickly realized that my ignorance was totally understandable. There was no vertical sign. At that space indicating that it was a handicapped spot and the painted sign on the asphalt was almost completely covered by salt and snow. It truly was an honest mistake and so we took pictures of the situation from as many angles as possible and decided that I would go to court and plead guilty but with an explanation and ask for forgiveness. So it was several months later, I found myself sitting in the purgatory that is traffic court. I had been corralled with all the other evil handicap spot violators who were also pleading guilty with an explanation. So we go into the courtroom, they start off our session, the judge enters, she swears in, and after making some announcements and explaining some protocol, she calls the first name. And after she calls the name, I watched this sweet elderly gentleman right in front of me stand up. He received a loving pat on his arm from his adorable wife who was sitting next to him and he approached the bench. Now this man was the epitome of apologetic. And he explained to the judge that he and his wife do have a handicap tag. They had just failed to hang it from their rear view mirror that day. He had the tag with him in his hand and he kept apologizing over and over saying, I'm so sorry. We'll never let it happen again. Please forgive us. And I thought, this guy is so sweet. Surely she's not going to make him pay that fine. So I was relieved when she said she'd waived the whole fine and told him that he just had to pay court fees and let him go. And I thought, all right, we're off to a good start. So she calls the next person, and the next person rises up, and this time it's a middle-aged woman who had apparently sustained some sort of mysterious foot injury. She practically hobbled up to the front of the courtroom on crutches with her foot in a large boot, and I thought... Well, geez, surely this is going to be at the center of her defense. But oddly enough, she never mentioned the foot or the crutches once as she proceeded to explain that she had simply stopped to pick her mother up at a store, and when her mother had not come out right away, she needed to just run in real quick and thought it would be okay to leave the car in the handicapped spot for just a few minutes. So my eyes immediately flashed over to the judge thinking, what is she going to do? How is she going to react to this? But the judge looked down at her paper and then looked up and simply said, all right, thank you. I'm waiving your fine. You can just pay court fees. And I thought, wow, that was perhaps the worst excuse I've ever heard. And she got off with just court fees. This is looking pretty good. Then the judge called the next person. And I honestly had to suppress an exaggerated eye roll as another middle-aged woman hobbled up to the front of the courtroom on crutches with her foot in a boot. And I thought, okay, this is going to be good. But just like the woman before her, she didn't mention the crutches or the injury once. This woman went on to recount this long, confusing story that basically when it was boiled down to it, she just said she was only going to be in coals for a few minutes and she thought it would be Okay. And I thought, what? I could not wait to hear how the judge would handle this one. And I had to suppress yet another exaggerated eye roll when she simply said, okay, I'm waiving your fine. You can just go and pay court fees. And I thought, man, this is the most lenient traffic court judge in the world. But then it was my turn. And the judge called my name, and I approached the front of the courtroom. I politely thanked her for her time and apologized for the offense and explained the circumstances that led to me accidentally parking in that spot. I explained to her that I had pictures of the situation showing the lack of vertical signage and the snow covering the painted emblem, and apologized, saying, if I had known it was a handicapped spot, I never would have parked there. And so I asked her if she wanted to see the pictures, and she said, no, that won't be necessary. I'm going to reduce your fine to $50 plus court fees. Thank you. And I was a little bit in shock for a moment. But finally, I said, thank you, and walked out of the courtroom. Now, $50 is a heck of a lot better than $350. But I thought, you have got to be kidding me. We've got the Crutches twins over here who flat out told you they just didn't feel like obeying the law, and you let them both off with just court fees, and you feel the need to give me, someone with a perfectly rational excuse, $50 plus court fees. Me, I am the girl who is a total rule follower, who does not have a single other parking ticket or speeding ticket on her record. You make me pay $50 plus court fees? I was mad. And when I got home, Ben got an earful about how broken the justice system is and how horrible people are and how unfair life is. Now, I realized I was being overly dramatic. But as I reflected on the experience, I realized that my perspective had shifted While I was in that courtroom, I went into that courtroom as a guilty criminal who was just hoping for any measure of forgiveness, but I left that courtroom feeling like a judge who knew best what everyone in the room deserved, myself included. And what I've noticed is that I don't just do this in traffic court. I can easily slip into thinking this way in every sphere of my relationships. I've come to see that I have a very refined, very complex, unspoken justice system of fines and penalties that I apply to every one of my relationships. Now, I don't charge people actual money. I can't. If I could, that would be awesome. But I can't force anybody to cough up cash, so I have other methods for punishing people who hurt me. And maybe you do too. For many of us, it's often just simple things like carefully chosen harsh words or giving someone the cold shoulder or the silent treatment or maybe it's dragging that person's reputation through the mud. We are all so good at unfollowing, unfriending, or blocking people. We have our methods for punishing people when they hurt us. But today, as we are continuing the series No Greater Love, We are looking again at Jesus' words to us in John 13, 34, where he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in our last episode, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he demonstrated courageous love by choosing to love, even though it was in direct conflict with his feelings. And today we are going to see him live out that courageous love on the cross and show us that his love is a forgiving love. See, that night in the garden, Jesus was arrested and then he was led away to endure the most corrupt court proceedings in history. We read in Luke 22 that Jesus was first tried before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the highest level of authority among the Jews. And because these priests failed to see that Jesus was the son of God, in their eyes, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And in their Jewish law, that kind of blasphemy was a crime Punishable by death. But the problem for them was in their society, they weren't allowed to give anyone the death sentence without the approval of Rome because they were under Roman rule. So they needed their Roman governor to approve the death penalty for Jesus. So they take Jesus to Pilate, the governor of their region. Now, remember, to the Jewish leaders, blasphemy is a crime punishable by death, but they knew that Rome did not feel the same way. So when they make their case before Pilate, they basically make a bunch of false accusations hoping to get approval for the death penalty. And that's where we'll pick up in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse one. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. And Do you hear what they're trying to do? They are trying to paint Jesus as some sort of political revolutionary. They say he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That's a flat out lie. In Luke 20, verse 22, Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar. And he says, give back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Now, then they do list their actual complaint that he claims to be the Messiah, but then they added, conveniently, a king, again, trying to point Pilate to the idea that Jesus is some sort of political troublemaker and is going to cause a revolt against Rome. And so Pilate questions Jesus, and then he goes back to the people in verse 4 and announces, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But the council and the people won't let it go. They push their case. And so Pilate, who's kind of at a loss for what to do, asks if Jesus is a Galilean, which he was. And so it's with a sigh of relief that Pilate is able to send Jesus off to Herod, who was over that jurisdiction. So Jesus goes and appears before Herod. And Herod is actually really excited to see Jesus because he is hoping he'll do some sort of trick or miracle to entertain and impress his court. But Herod interrogates Jesus, and Jesus gives no answer. So the chief priests and teachers of the law continue to ridicule him and accuse him. But Herod makes no ruling, eventually gives up. They just mock and ridicule Jesus and then send him back to Pilate. Then in verse 13, we read, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Pilate is saying he's willing to give Jesus some sort of punishment to appease the council, but he's obviously not deserving of death. But then the crowd does something unthinkable. They begin to shout loudly that they want Jesus crucified, and they want Pilate to release to them instead a man named Barabbas. And we are told in the passage that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. So this is a guy who is actually guilty of the things Jesus is being accused of and the people are demanding make Jesus pay the price that Barabbas deserves. They kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So for the third time in verse 22, Pilate says, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds. No grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. In verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. And eventually, Pilate gives in to their demands. He releases Barabbas to the crowd, and he sends Jesus to be crucified. This is the most broken picture of justice the world has ever seen. Pilate, finding nothing wrong with Jesus, surrendered to the pressure of the crowd and allowed an innocent man to go to his death. And that should make us mad. But none of it happened outside the will of God who allowed his son to suffer and die to offer us forgiveness. And so with courageous love, Jesus went to be flogged, beaten within an inch of his life, and then with courageous love went to the cross. And it's there when he's hanging on the cross in verse 34 that he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And it's here that we see God's heart broken open and find that at the core of his love for us is a supernatural forgiveness and Jesus doesn't just pray to his father asking them to show forgiveness but he lives it out in verses 35 through 39 there's this pattern that we see first the people and the rulers sneer at Jesus and they said he saved others let him save himself then the soldiers come up and mock Jesus and say if you're a king why don't you save yourself And then the criminals who are being crucified on either side of him join in. And one of the criminals says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Do you hear the pattern? All these groups of people are asking Jesus, if you are who you say you are, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And then in his love and in his grace, Jesus refuses to save himself so that he can save us us. And it's then that the second criminal speaks up in verse 40 and says to the criminal who's accusing Jesus and mocking Jesus, "Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence?" He says, "We are being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong." And then he turns to Jesus and begs for forgiveness, asking, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus extends forgiveness and tells him, truly, I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. Because that criminal gets it. He says, we are being punished justly for what we have done. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing Wrong. And that is the gospel message. Jesus took our punishment. He paid our debt. And then he looked to the Father and prayed, Forgive them. Forgiveness means paying the fine for the other person. It's saying to the other person, Debt canceled. That is the good news of the gospel, that even though we have made mistakes that alienate us from God, Jesus took all of that punishment, all of it, on himself when he went to the cross, and then he looks at us in love and says, debt canceled. I love you. I paid it for you. That is what Jesus did for us, and it's what he calls us to do for others. Remember Jesus' words, love one another as I have loved you, so you must Love one another. And you may be thinking, well, sure, God's love is a forgiving love, but that forgiveness is supernatural. I mean, it can take someone from death to eternal life. Jesus was completely sinless and perfect, so his act of self sacrifice and forgiveness, it's not something that can be replicated by us as humans. And if that's your line of thinking, then you probably agree with Kesha. I don't know if you're familiar with Kesha's hit song, Praying, but it is a global hit, so you've probably heard it on the radio or somewhere. Now, many reviewers think that in this song, she is singing about her ex who she publicly accused of sexual assault and emotional abuse in a lawsuit. And in the chorus of the song, she says to this person, I hope you're somewhere praying. I hope your soul is changing. I hope you find your peace falling on your knees. And that's all good because that's true. That's the only place you can find real peace is on your knees before Jesus asking for forgiveness and asking for peace. But she goes on to say, some say in life, you're gonna get what you give, but some things only God can forgive. And then she wails at the top of her vocal range, and it's insane. I mean, musically, it is so good, and the lyrics just suck you right in. And so it's no surprise that it is a huge hit, and tons of people listen to the song on a regular basis. But right at the center of it is a lie. And it's a lie that I think even we as Christians are tempted to believe at times that there are some things that we can and should forgive, you know, the small stuff, but that there are some things that are simply too big for us to forgive. And so we just have to leave those to God. Now, listen to me very carefully. Jesus is the only one who can offer someone eternal life because he is the perfect son of God and he took all of our sin on himself. But it is a lie to believe that you and I are exempt from forgiving other people from certain things because they are too big for us to forgive. Colossians 3, 13-14 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. See what Jesus did for us on an eternal scale, he commands us to do for each other in our human relationships. And no, it's not easy. You will need courageous love to practice forgiving love. I don't know if you've followed the federal court case of Dr. Larry Nasser, but Nasser, who was once a world renowned sports physician treating America's foremost Olympic women gymnasts, um, on January 24th was found guilty of sexually abusing young female athletes for decades. And he was sentenced to between 40 and 175 years in federal prison. And that sentence is piled on top of the 60-year sentence he had already received being found guilty of child pornography charges in November. A woman named Rachel Den Hollander was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nassar of sexual abuse, and she was the last of more than 150 women and girls to confront him in court during his sentencing hearing. And I want to read you just a portion of her statement because she Courageously takes the opportunity to both share and live out the gospel. She addresses Nasser by saying, In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, You know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, she says, I too choose to love this way. She later goes on to say, Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. She says, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, I hope that you tell everyone you meet about the amazing grace that is available to them in Jesus. But I believe some of the greatest work for the gospel that you will ever do is to offer forgiveness to people who have hurt you. Colossians 3, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Anyone. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And when we live out that love by offering forgiveness, we point each other to the one who offers us the complete forgiveness that we so desperately need. Jesus, the perfect judge, stepped down from the judge's bench and sided with us against our sin. He took the punishment we deserved on himself, every drop of it, and then said, I forgive you. Debt canceled. Listen, what that person did to you is not okay. It's not. Don't think for a minute that forgiving someone is a form of passing approval on their actions. And their actions may still lead them to painful natural consequences in this life. But forgiving is you saying, as far as it depends on me, I choose to forgive you. I am going to step down from the judge's bench in my own life and instead choose to say, That debt that you owe me personally is canceled. That is the heart of forgiving love. And praise God, it's at the center of his love for us. So I know, again, this has been a heavy episode today. And so I want to, again, close by praying for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for everyone who is listening to this episode. And because we live in this broken world, God, I know that every single person listening has someone in their life, has a relationship that is broken that requires forgiveness. And so we ask, God, that you show us just the next step in courageous love, in forgiving love, to move toward saying to that person, that debt that you owe me is canceled. We know that in that forgiveness, We can point people to you, the one who offers us forgiveness, that offers eternal life. And we know that it will be freeing for us. And so we ask you, God, for the strength and the ability to take just the next step. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.